You're about to listen to an episode of Legally Fonds. This episode is brought to you in association with LawSchool.ie. LawSchool.ie is Ireland's leading provider of tuition for the FE1 or King's Inns entrance exams. Each course is delivered live online with a specific exam focus and supported by the latest manuals. Shorter, pre-recorded workshops are also available and courses commence every year in June and November. Register anytime at lawschool.ie and for a 10% discount on any course, just use the discount code LEGALLYFOND. Before we start this week's episode of Legally Fond, we want to say thank you. We can officially say we are Ireland's best student podcast for 2020. Last week at the Yap Ireland Podcasting Awards, we won both the Culture and Current Affairs Category Award and the overall award. Apparently now we also deal in culture. I'm not we should sure get a tax how much for of that, that we... Yeah, yeah, we're in the arts. We're like Bono or something. <laughs> um, so we won that too. We want to say thank you to you for keeping on listening and spreading the good word about Legally Fund. If you're one of the OGs who listened from episode one, thanks for your patience, really. I don't know what to do with ourselves this newfound, newfound fame. Like Trinity College Dublin Instagram, like... Is that it? Have we made it? Like, Yeah, these are the dizzying highs of stardom that they warned us about. Our fan base has grown as well. And thank you to everyone who listened to us because we've now surpassed the 2000 mark and only on the up as a result of winning with all this beautiful popularity and uh, publication and propaganda perhaps we're getting from Trinity College. Thanks to Newstalk and EY for sponsoring the event as well. Welcome to Legally Fond episode 13. Come fly with me, if you'll pardon the pun. listening to Legally Fond is an enlightening experience. You learn loads about the law. Other times, maybe you just find out about our opinions on the world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about climate change, Heathrow's third runway. But to give you a bit of background on this case and the other one we're going to discuss, let's talk about administrative law. Maybe let's start by explaining the UK's unusual constitution. In the UK, unlike Ireland, they don't have a written constitution. They have what's called constitutional convention which is what everybody expects will go on or what will happen. So we've got an unwritten constitution and then we've got parliamentary sovereignty. What's that? So that gives you an idea of, you know, parliament being the highest form of law in the land. Technically, the parliament, you know, parliamentary sovereignty is very, very important in the UK. It's what caused a lot of issues around the Brexit withdrawal agreements. So the Miller case is an example of how important that is, uh, which meant that the withdrawal agreement had to go through Parliament. It couldn't just be signed off by the Prime Minister. You know, some people kind of say, well, that means they could legislate for anything. And technically, yes, there is a quote saying that, you know, you could legislate that uh, all blue-eyed babies be murdered, but nobody would actually do that. So it relies on that convention and that Parliament as a whole will remain a functioning democracy and not legislate anything too insane really if you want to find out more about how constitutions work you're probably best as a little bit of background study to listen to our second episode constitution on crack so we've got the uk's unwritten constitution we've got parliamentary sovereignty which means that parliament 
the House of Lords and the House of Commons are supreme in terms of making law. So how is this different from Ireland, Alex? So in Ireland with a written constitution, fundamental rights, all these things are just written down. They can't, they can only be changed by referendum. So in Ireland, the courts have a good bit more control over what the government and politicians do. Courts are almost like the referees in the game. They decide whether something is constitutional or not. So if a, a government passes a law and it breaches a right that is in the constitution, then the court can strike down that law. As I said, listen to episode two to find out more about this. But there is another way that courts can supervise things that public bodies and government officials do, and that's called judicial review. So this is the ability to challenge a decision made by a public body or an administrative officer. The government gives power to public bodies to make certain decisions. Let's say it's the planning board in Ireland on board Planola who make decisions about whether a development can get planning permission. Or it might be a county council making a decision about whether or not a family is homeless and therefore whether or not the county council has to provide them with emergency accommodation. So the government gives all these different people or bodies powers to make these decisions. But they have to follow a particular procedure when they're making the decision. So let's say you were a member of a family who is homeless and the council refused to recognise you as homeless and therefore they have no obligation to provide you with accommodation. You can go to the high court and challenge this and the court will try and examine whether or not the decision maker, in this case the county council, made the decision in the right way. So the crucial thing with judicial review is you're not challenging the result of the decision, you're challenging how the decision was made. Well, there's a number of ways that you can initiate judicial review. So it can be something called ultra vires. I know we hate Latin on this show. Or an ultra vires decision is when a, an administrative body, so this is, could be any public body, and if they make a decision outside of their power, it's outside of their remit, they have made a decision is beyond what they should have made. The courts are very reluctant to go and start saying that a decision is ra- irrational. The bar in Ireland and England is extremely high, so you can do it but has to fly, literally fly in the face of reason and common sense is the standard in Ireland. It can be quite difficult to successfully judicially review something. So the first case we're going to discuss in this episode of Legally Fond is an English case of judicial review. If you've followed any news about climate change over the past couple of years, you'll probably be aware of the COP21 summit. It happened in Paris in 2015. All the UN member nations signed up to this agreement to limit an increase in global average temperatures below two degrees above pre-industrial levels. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know what exactly that entails, but it's a promise to keep global warming down. A few years later, the English Parliament voted in favour of adding a third runway to Heathrow Airport in London. Problem? Obviously, aviation is very carbon-intensive and environmentally unfriendly. And it's pretty noisy. So all the local councils around Heathrow in London who were worried about the noise and air pollution and then a load of environmental organisations which were worried about the wider effects to the environment took the government to court about this decision because they said it was illegal. The Planning Act in England says that whenever a government makes a decision about a big development it has to take into account government policy. And the environmental NGOs here said... It's government policy to reduce our climate emissions because we signed up to this COP21 agreement and we keep on saying it 
that we pledge to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Yet on the other hand, we're going off and deciding to add a third runway, which is going to add to our climate emissions massively. What had happened here was that the UK government had actually received advice not only to ignore the Paris Agreement to reduce climate emissions, but to actually deliberately not consider it when making their decision about whether or not they should go ahead with this third runway in Heathrow. The court said because it had been ratified in 2015 and because politicians kept on bringing up this 2015 agreement and saying we've signed up to it, we're committed to it, then it was a part of government policy. And because they weren't taking government policy into account when making the decision about the runway, the government was breaking the law, its own law that it had made. So just to give some background to this case, Heathrow Airport in London or outside London is not only the busiest airport in Europe, it's actually the busiest airport in the world. So it has two runways and it caters to 70% of the UK's long haul flights, which means about 80 million people go through Heathrow every year, as is with the two runways. This led to the proposal to build a third runway, which would see the traffic in the airport increase from about 400, 480,000 flights per year to upwards of 700,000. So that is is a huge, massive increase in the volume of flights uh, that would be catering to this particular airport producing emissions that would be contrary to the climate goals of the UK as outlined in their own legislation as well as the Paris Climate Accord Agreement. Famously, Donald Trump pulled America out of the the Paris Agreement. Everybody can have their own thoughts on that. But yeah, it's a, especially considering the courts, you know, because of the separation of powers that, you know, the courts are there to kind of review, they're there to review the power to make the decision they're not necessarily there to dictate policy it's always been a it's always a difficult question when you say well should the courts enforce you know some manifesto promise or in this case you know an international a non-binding international treaty on the government themselves depending on where you, on the way you look at this like okay third world runway at heathrow that in itself not great for the environment planes landing but you could make the argument that well the planes could land anyway you know, there are other airports in Britain and they'll just find a way to get more passengers in and out of the island or they'll just get more connecting flights. You could argue that there is a lost tax revenue from the Heathrow runway that could have been pushed into green technology. And, you know, I guess when you look at the flip side of it, if they lose all this tax revenue, you know, that isn't going to be invested in the, you know, green technology projects like wind farms and i think that's an interesting point and i think the only way that airports and aviation and as an industry is going to be able to survive in an environmentally conscious world and in a world where there has to be net zero emissions is where there is carbon offsetting aviation is incredibly carbon intensive it's a a major polluter one of the biggest polluters in the world as an industry and i think the only way it can still exist in 30 years time is if the proceeds from aviation are being invested in renewable energies or planting trees to balance the equation, so to speak. Well, I think I think that's quite interesting because this proposed third runway kind of contradicted the plans surrounding Heathrow's strategy to become uh, a zero carbon output airport by the mid 2030s. They had already spent about a hundred million pounds on energy efficiency upgrades in buildings. And then, like you say, 
they invested in renewable energy. So the energy that they needed to power these massive terminal buildings and all, you know, to allow all the businesses to operate in the, in the duty free. This was coming from solar plants, from wind plants, whatever. But to go back to a point that you made earlier about, let's say, the risk uh, posed to governments, uh, potentially hamstringing themselves or hindering themselves with an international treaty that they have perhaps not put too much consideration into and signed up and, you know, kind of quite flippantly. I go back to what the government said when they ratified this treaty or what the British government said upon ratification of this treaty. And it's important to hold them. It is important for the government to be held account to what they said. They said of the Paris Climate Accord after it had been signed that it would form the forefront of policy and economic decisions made by both the government and businesses in the UK for the coming decade. And if you look at the parliamentary exchanges, it very much shows this as well. Andrea Leadsom at the time, who was Minister of State for Energy, talked about the importance of enshrining this treaty in law. And Amber Rudd as well brings it up and says, this is the tool that is going to lead us to be a zero net emissions society by 2050 or whatever the case may be. This, this, this is very you know, strong language coming from the government. They're taking this particularly serious until they decide actually the goals, the ambitions and targets of this particular agreement don't suit our own personal vested interests in developing Heathrow Airport. So are politicians absolute charlatans going off to the UN on these PR missions, signing these treaties, thinking they'll get all the credit for signing them, but not expecting to have any responsibility to their pledge. At least Barr said that, you know, he'd be willing to lie down in front of the bulldozer. Like, you know, that's put it... Putting his money where his mouth is. I will join you. I will lie down with you in front of those bulldozers and stop the and stop the building, uh, stop the construction of that The government probably saw it as a bit of a shock that they actually had to stick to something they said they'd do or that it would be enforced because we said we're going to do it like emphatically, like it's you know, all the minister statements. You know, we've signed this interna- non-binding international treaty. Like Pierce, you've got a single runway airport in Kerry. Correct, far and four. Do you live close to it? Uh, relatively close. When I was flying back from Germany, I flew via London Stansted and was able to get a Ryanair flight then from Stansted to Kerry. I'm not going to disclose the, the time it took me to drive from Farron 4 to my house because I'm sure somebody can calculate some kind of draw, some sort of radius and then calculate a, a particular geographic area in which my resident falls. So um you're gonna, sorry, have to bleep, to... you're gonna have to bleep that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get the bleep right again. <laughs> okay, so you know, since you live in <laughs> Pierce, the Healy Rays got the EU funding for a brand new airport in outside. As you have said many, many a time, you know, the beautiful, untamed wilderness that is. Would you object? Would you, you know, be on the side of Greenpeace and? I think the the decision of the court in relation to the Heathrow case that we're covering at the moment suggests that they said you cannot build a runway, you cannot build a third runway in Heathrow. That's not the case. They said under the plans the government were proposing, you weren't allowed to build a runway because it's so significantly infringed on the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement that that it would you know essentially render the the targets for the UK to drop their emissions by eighty uh, percent impossible. So. I think if you put to me a plan whereby you were expanding the existing airport in Kerry in a manner which was, you know, conscious of of pressing environmental concerns and uh, was offsetting 
the increased carbon emissions that no doubt the increased air traffic would, would bring, then yes, of course, I think it would be a very positive development for the area. So like, you know, as long as it didn't shred any of those golden eagles they reintroduced on takeoff, it's kind of could be okay. Like Gavin says, we cannot stop the march of progress and construction and building and state projects because it, it may increase carbon emissions. I think we can continue building and, and investing in infrastructure in a manner that, yeah, it, it will in, inevitably and naturally increase emissions in some capacity, but I think they can be offset. The legal advice they got at the time said to them they should actively ignore their obligations under the COP21 agreement, not just not take them into account or kind of look at them. No, they should completely disregard them when making the decision about the runway. The legal advice at the time probably wasn't that far off the mark in what the court had done before. Irish courts have certainly been very slow, you know, to engage in what they feel is policymaking um, or telling the governments how to spend the hard-earned money of the normal taxpayer. And why is that? As I said slightly earlier as well, the courts are not democratically elected. They are a lot of the time old people in wigs and the courts are very willing to make decisions on matters of law because, you know, that's their institutional competence. That's what they do. It's, you know, it's why they're there. It's the ex- you know, they're the experts on the old law stuff, but they're not experts on the environment. They're not experts on economics, although some judges probably fancy themselves as such. They're not. Well, speaking of the Irish case law, there's actually a very similar case in Ireland, Merriman and Fingal County Council. Alex, you might tell us a little bit about it. Reasonably similar case, you know, in terms of the basic facts. Some airports were discussing building another runway. A lot of environmental groups objected to this. However, they lost. Now, they lost in kind of a more interesting way. And it comes back to, you know, what we said about the difference in the UK not having a written constitution and the Irish having a written constitution, but then having some unwritten rights. These are known as unenumerated rights, rights that exist within the constitution, but aren't written down in the constitution. How can something exist if we can't see it or we don't know about it? Well, you're best off listening to episode four, Vax On, Vax Off, where we discussed a little bit about that. What right did they find in this case, Alex? There was a right to a dignified and environment and you know that was to be preserved even then the plaintiff still lost the case because of that case very strong protection for the environment in the irish constitution or for somebody's right to the environment to have a you know dignified environment in the constitution in the only case that it's ever been mentioned it's lost well it suggests it's not a particularly strong right given that some of the people who took the case were residents in saint margaret's in dublin which is an area right next to where the runway was going to be built and if they being people who live next to a runway, perhaps the noisiest form of transport infrastructure, with planes landing every day of the year from about 6am to 11pm. So if they didn't manage to successfully argue that their right to a dignified environment and their right to well-being in their environment was infringed, then who would? Yeah, even with this great inconvenience, like a brand new runway right next to your house probably doesn't do well for uh, for your enjoyment of the land on a nice, quiet summer's afternoon um, when everybody's are off to Parmalinos for two weeks. going to be tropic. Now, I'm very sceptical about unenumerated rights because human rights law exists in this overlap between law and politics. Now, I think we agree that... Judges do law. That's their gig. That's what they do best. And the Irish Constitution would say that as well. But the Irish Constitution also gives judges 
the authority to interpret the constitution. So they can interpret what the words in the constitution mean, and they can decide if they want to discover new rights in the constitution. On the other hand, the executive and the legislature, the politicians, are the ones who do politics. They decide the policies of this country. When a judge magics up a right to a dignified environment, and uses that, although he didn't use that in this way in the Merriman case, but he could have used it to prevent the development of a runway, he's effectively making a political decision. And in my opinion, these decisions are much better made through the political process, a process which is about collaboration, compromise, taking into account everyone's views, consensus, as opposed to the legal process, where judges make decisions from their ivory tower, are not democratically elected, are not democratically accountable, and are not obliged to take a wider view and take into account the various interests involved in the decision. So I think that whether it's a decision about this runway, whether it's a decision about providing contraception, whether it's a decision about providing abortion, it's far better that those questions, they are political questions, not legal questions in my opinion, that they get resolved through the political process and through the democratic process, as opposed to allowing a judge to effectively rule by decree and act as an unelected politician. You know, it creates substantial barriers sometimes for the government to do things. But in the case that it, this right was plucked out of the air, it you know, they didn't succeed. That right didn't trump what Dublin Airport were doing. Yes, in principle, when you push any principle to its furthest extreme, it's not a good thing. The unenumerated rights doctrine, which we've covered in previous episodes, have been generally pretty good. So right to privacy. But what is the extent of that right? And I mean, that's down to judges. It's all down to judges. And the, I think the, the real issue is democratic deficit. And like, as much as people give out about politicians, we do elect them. Like, and that's still an important thing to consider. The law is always going to focus on, well, if it doesn't affect you, you don't really have much standing here. But even the most liberal of libertarians acknowledge the fact that there's an externality and to everything that you do. Like, if you live down the river of some chemical plant that's pouring Teflon into the water, it's going to be an externality. Like, you know, you're going to get sick or your crops are going to die. Now, as you become more aware how climate change is such an issue, it could be logical. Now, again, I'm kind of contradicting myself. It could be logical to say that this is more justified because these externalities they were always there. We're just paying better attention to them now. And that justifies such an intervention into kind of, you know, rather than creating, it's not creating some positive obligation, but it's saying the state can't do something in particular because of the environmental consequences and because of the externalities on the rest of the world. Like you can't, you know, play jungle music at six o'clock in the morning, you know, 24 seven. Maybe there is an argument to say though, because a lot of climate change campaigners would feel that the political process has failed them and governments As we saw in the Heathrow case, despite signing on to the COP21 agreement and vowing to decrease climate emissions, they went ahead to try and make this runway and disregarded the agreement entirely. It would seem that the political process has failed there. Well, I I think we have to have an element of trust, Gavin, in the judiciary. And I think what you're suggesting there of basically allowing big business or groups of individuals, people with vested interests to lobby politicians and give them a mandate to interpret the law in such a way so as to advance their own needs is is really really dangerous stuff veering towards populism you know a lot of times the interpretation of the law is not particularly popular it's uh, people aren't particularly happy with it but that's why we even more so need an independent judiciary to ensure 
that the law is, is interpreted fairly. And uh, To be honest, Pierce, I'd rather populism through a democratic process, where at least we can vote out the populists, to other policies suggested and enforced by judges who are not elected. There is an element of you know, democratic accountability, but that should be reserved to the houses of the Oireachtas. And as we have seen time and time again, popularity doesn't always equate with competency or, you know, somebody's ability to do the job well. Uh, and oftentimes people who are great individuals in the workplace, that might not necessarily translate into managing particular departments. You know, we've had a few medical doctors head up the Department of Health. That doesn't mean they've been great health ministers, you know, when they've been in charge of these environments. So but I they think... can be voted out if they're not a great health minister. If a judge is a bad judge, unfortunately, he can't well, I, be voted out. I think out. So, much, so much of the judiciary's value lies in their wealth of experience, as I've said. You know, it, you, you hone your craft of constitutional interpretation over years and years of doing this job. As I always am, I'm going to be the voice of reason and common sense. I agree with Pierce in the sense that Right, judges cannot completely remove themselves from a decision. You know, you've seen that in a lot of human rights cases where the court will basically use the same law, but come to completely different conclusions simply because of their own personal, political, moral compasses. However, I do think you do need a little bit of faith that generally they won't. That's why you have five judges on a very important case. So there has to be a majority. It's not just down to one individual. Telling somebody they can't do something is different to telling them what exactly to do. And that's what the government, you know, the government is there to make policy and take action. And the independent judiciary is there to make sure that policy doesn't go beyond what the government should be able to do. Okay, I think we've fleshed this out in quite some detail up to this point. There is an argument to say that perhaps it's more important that we have a right to the environment because the environment, while a living thing, is not a human thing and it cannot protect itself without individuals standing up for it. And in an era of climate change where the planet is hurtling towards self-destruction, the law needs to stand up for the environment if nobody else will. I guess that's when you completely separate the environment from humans because the quality, like, you know, air quality has a direct effect on human health. Diesel fumes aren't good for the old lungs. And, you know, if you're sucking them down behind a bus five days a week, not really a good thing for your health. So I think like separating it completely doesn't, uh, doesn't stand up. But there can be decisions that are bad for the environment that don't necessarily or directly affect humans' enjoyment of the environment. If you extend it out far enough. That's all for this episode of Legally Fond. Pierce, you might tell us about the new website. Well, Gavin has done a fantastic job of revamping and improving the website uh, from his initial design. And I emphasize his initial design because myself and Alex were less than impressed with his artistic choices, shall we say. But it's looking great now. It's fantastic. We have started putting up book reviews again. And we have bits and pieces on our blog as well detailing various cases that we've covered so some interesting stuff there what's the website pierce www.legallyfond.com i would emphasize that because legallyfond.com is a different thing entirely (laughs) 